Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we just honor you. God, we we love you. We thank you for being here with us, for gathering us here. It's not so much that we have come here, set up, and created a spiritual environment, hoping to make contact with you. But we see this expectation in your heart to gather your people You promised that when two or more are gathered, we can expect you here waiting to work in the midst of us. And so we thank you for your presence. Lord, we thank you for, well, the Lord's Day here, Sunday. This is the start of a new week. Thank you for this new day. Your word says that your mercies are just fresh and new today. Thank you, God, that we don't have to bring anything stale into this place and leave with it. We come before you in need of your refreshing presence, your refreshing touch. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to minister to us as we we dive into what you've spoken in your word. Um, God, as I pray each and every week, pray you would um, get me out of the way so that you can minister to your kids, to your church. Holy Spirit, we ask you to speak to us and that you would give us ears to hear what you're saying. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Why don't you have your seat? Thank you, Lynn, and uh, good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. It's good to be with you guys. Good to see you on this Sunday morning. Good to be back. I was really thankful for Nate Gallagher, who was here last Sunday filling in and, and brought an incredible message. Uh, my family and I, we got away for a few days up to the great state of Maine, uh, and it was beautiful. I highly recommend that you visit the state of Maine. Uh, it's pretty much the polar opposite of South Florida in many ways, but uh, it was really sweet to see these things called seasons. I'll have to tell you all about it. Um, well, I know we have seasons here. It's been said we have football season and hurricane season. That's kind of the South Florida ones. But, but up in Maine, seeing the leaves change colors and enjoying some fall weather. I love that we have the fall event coming up. Kyle said to celebrate fall. It's almost an act of faith for us to have this event and sort of will fall into existence with our gathering. Anyway, um, but yeah, it's, it's really really sweet to be back. And I just want to say a word too. Um, If you notice on your way in, uh, we had a guest worship team uh, that was here. This is uh, on my my left here. This is Pastor Daniel and his wife, Laura. Can we just honor them and uh, thank them for being with us? And on the cajon behind Laura and Dan is Carrie. I want to welcome Carrie as well. Thanks for being here. And so Pastor Daniel is a good friend of mine. He pastors a church in Delray Beach called Redemption Church. He's one of the first local pastors that took the initiative to reach out to me when we were starting the church. This is about five years ago, with no like personal gain of his own, but just a heart to want to invest in a young guy 
uh, who's walking down a road that he's been down. Uh, so he reached out to me. We grabbed lunch. He, he's been a great encouragement to me, a great friend to me. Um, and he's also, I mean, he's a jack of all ministry traits. So he's a great preacher and worship leader. And so we're really thankful that, he, that they came today to be with us, to lead us in worship. And so, yeah, really great to have you guys. Appreciate you. Dan and I are a part of a, a group of local pastors that get together once a month to really just encourage each other and pray for our churches and our city. And so, uh, yeah, he's been a real, real joy to me. Um, well, Mark chapter 13, holy cow, four verses here this morning. Let me give some context. As Kyle said, we're continuing to work our way through the gospel of Mark, and uh, our series is entitled The Way. We're exploring the way of Jesus in the gospel of Mark. This is what Mark uniquely shows us. You know, what would Jesus do has an answer, and it's the gospel of Mark. And we see so many aspects to the way of Jesus in this book. Um, we're trying to pace ourselves going through it, we as in me. Uh, Christmas is coming. The goal is to be done with, Christmas, uh, with Mark by Christmas. That's the goal. See what the Lord does. Uh, it's going to be interesting. We're going to be like celebrating his death and resurrection and then his birth. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome the way this timeline goes. But uh, yeah, two weeks ago, we had a, a big chunk of scripture. I, get, I think we went through like 30-something verses. It was actually the longest sermon I have ever preached at Solus. So if you feel like listening to the longest sermon I've ever preached at Solace, it was two weeks ago. You could check it out online. And then we brought Nate in, and we were like, hey, Nate, do four verses. Just give the church a breather and come bring a 35-minute message. And he did that. And as I, it's funny, coming back from vacation, I was like, okay, what, what are we up, what's, you know, what am I up to bat with here? Well, it's just the good old Mark 13 Olivet Discourse, one of the most dense and complexing, um, implicating passages of Scripture uh, in the whole Bible. Mark chapter 13, uh, and so we're doing four verses today, and you're, you're going to see why we're going to do that, but uh, I want to say this, Mark 13 is one of three main sections of scripture uh, that's sort of a go-to point with studying end times events, that's what we're getting into today, good morning and welcome to church, all right? Uh, I want to say that this is one of the reasons, just this is extra caveat disclaimer stuff, and then we'll get into the Bible study. We're going to need every second we have, so I'll try to get through this. But this is one of the reasons why we study as a church, why we study the Bible expositionally, meaning we, we allow chapters and books of the Bible to guide our study and to guide our thinking. Two main reasons why we do this, we pick books of the Bible and we go through them, is one, it keeps us from our preferential hobby horses. Like, there, I could tell you there's about four or five topics that I would love to just always teach on. And it's just kind of a comfort zone for me. You don't step on any toes. You don't ruffle any feathers. And it's just, you know, it helps maybe fill seats and, and helps the bank account of the church get bigger maybe. You know, you think about these different topics that you can just focus on. Well, that's one of the reasons why we study expositionally. We don't want to be bound by our preferential ideas. Um, we think that God's ideas are much more worth our attention than any man's ideas. That's why we open the Bible. We want to explore his ideas. Another reason why we study expositionally is not just because it keeps us from hobby horses, but it leads us into topics that I would never plan to study for and teach on if left to my own devices. Exhibit A, Mark chapter 13. Eschatology. <laughs> End times events. Uh, 
Now, we want to back up, and we're going to take some time to go through this. There was two plans. Either we just get through it, <laughs> straight shot through Mark 13, and leave most of your questions uh, with question marks, or we take some time to do our best to walk through this and grow as a church in this area. It's forced me into some deep study. My heart is full, but my brain hurts. I'll just be completely honest with you. Um, but I think this is going to be good food for our souls the next three weeks as we explore this stuff. Really good food to nourish us spiritually. Um, this, is not, this chapter is not outside of the theme of our series, The Way of Jesus. In fact, if you'd like to take notes, go ahead and write this down for a title today. We're going to give a bit of an introduction. But the main idea and the main aspect of the way of Jesus that we see here in Mark 13, at least specifically in the first four verses, is we see the way that Jesus predicted. The way that Jesus predicted. That's what we have here in this chapter. Um, it's important to note that Jesus is predicting, Mark 13 is Jesus predicting the future. That's what he's doing. It's more important to note that Jesus is doing that in a way that's unique to him. Every person in this room makes their own predictions. You ever made a prediction? You know, you predicted a sports team, what they were going to win. If you're in the fantasy league, you're predicting the final score, a certain player's stats. We make predictions about the weather. We make predictions about outcomes. One of my favorite predictions that makes no sense whatsoever. This is so popular is when someone's pregnant, everyone's trying to predict the gender. Like, I just feel like it's a boy. It's a boy. Are you sick often? No, then it's a girl. You're sick. It's a girl. We have these like formulas to determine what we predict the baby's going to be. I think I'm like 0 for 3 with our, with our children. Um, maybe 1 for 3. I think I was like all boys. All boys. Anyway. Um, you know, when Jesus predicts, he does so differently than us. When we predict things, whether it's the weather or that final score or the gender of that baby, we predict approximately. Or we just guess. You know, we're just like, I don't know, boom. We throw it out there. But most of the time, we guesstimate, right? We, we make our best educated assumption and prediction of what we think is going to happen. When Jesus predicts, let me say it clearly. When Jesus here in Mark 13, is, and as he's speaking about the future, Jesus doesn't predict approximately. Jesus predicts prophetically. He foretells the future before it even happens with pinpoint accuracy. Now, in Scripture, in Bible study, this is called, there's a category for this in Scripture, it's called predictive prophecy. Have you ever studied predictive prophecy? Well, if you read most of the Bible, you've studied predictive prophecy. Uh, predictive prophecy makes up 27% of the Bible. Did you know this? 27% of the book you're holding in your hands or that you're viewing on your app, 27% of that book is predictive in nature. Um, we see most of this, obviously, in the Old Testament with the major and the minor prophets and even beyond there. But you have these men that God, listen, choose to reveal information about the future that they wouldn't know on their own. It's just true. Like, no person in here, even with your best predictions, you cannot give any certain idea or prediction about the future. This is why worry is such a waste of time. Amen? Because most of the things we worry about are things we're predicting that don't even happen. 
There was a study on this that showed it was like over 80% of the things that we worry about never happen. You see, but when God speaks about the future, when God speaks to a prophet, and that prophet speaks to the, nature, the, uh, to the nation about what their future holds, they're doing it from a different perspective. God speaks as one outside of space and time. This is Theology 101. God is not bound by the space and time that he created. He's the creator of it. He's therefore outside of it. He's sovereign over it. Here's the way that he says it through the prophet Isaiah. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. So God is like, I'm in a category of my own here as God when it comes to the future. He says, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. 27% of the Bible is an illustration of this. You see this most in the very person of Jesus. Jesus himself, who fulfilled over 300 predictions about the future Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah in that he's fulfilling all of these predictions, over 300 plus. Um, and here in Mark 13, and it's funny, Mark is, is kind of an example of this. Matthew, if you're ever really wanting to connect Jesus to the Old Testament prophecies, to the Jewish people about their Messiah, the Gospel of Matthew is your book. The, the common phrase that's used over and over again in the Gospel of Matthew is, thus it was fulfilled. Thus it was fulfilled. That's Matthew. Jesus is showing up and fulfilling, or fulfilling these messianic prophecies about himself. Uh, here in Mark 13, we have something interesting. We have Jesus, the prophesied one, who is now the prophesying one. Jesus, the predicted one that Israel was waiting for, is now going to be the predicting one. As he is predicting the future prophetically. Uh, here in this passage, it's interesting, Jesus is unveiling the future to his disciples. You ever ask God, by the way, to unveil the future to you? You ever done that? It's like, God, what's next week going to look like? God, what's this big meeting going to look like? Can you just walk me through the full events of what that meeting is going to look like so I can go into that prepared knowing what's going to happen before it does? Now, most of the time when I pray this, God's like, trust me, follow me. Um, but there is so much to life in the future that God has revealed. This is really interesting. We're going to get into this. Um, and we'll just say this. God reveals what he knows we need to know. And God withholds and he keeps secret what he knows you don't need to know, that you need to trust him on. This is just a basic principle in scripture. God's usually like, I've given you enough to trust me. Trust me. I, trust me that I've revealed to you all that you need to know that I am who I am, and my plan for your life is good. Now, here we see Jesus, and we see an area of God's heart. I want you to know this. There is an area here in Mark 13 of God's heart that he wants to, an area of the future that he wants to unveil to you, that he wants you to be confident about. He wants you to know what's coming. He wanted this for the disciples. Uh, here's a little outline of where we're going to be going for the next three weeks I'm here in the first few verses that we'll look at. Jesus predicts, uh, well, in this whole chapter, he predicts three things about the future. He predicts the destruction of the temple, the Jewish temple. He does this in 33 AD. 
Um, the temple ends up being destroyed. We know this not from the Bible, but from history in 70 AD. Eddie, you just got back from Israel. Isn't that right? When did you get back? Come on, tell us. This morning. Eddie got back from Israel this morning, and he's in church. Give it up for Eddie. <laughs> he is so mad at me, by the way. Eddie, was there a Jerusalem temple when you were there? There was. The rebuilding, right. So there's a pile of rubble there at the Temple Mount. Jesus predicted that that would happen. The next thing Jesus predicts is the key signs and major events that will precede his promised return. Jesus doesn't want us to be ignorant, the scripture says, to the times and seasons that are giving certain... It's like you look at in, in the north, there's leaves that tell you what season is coming. Leaves change here, they just die, maybe, you know. That's how you know the future is coming at you in the way that you can expect. And the third thing, he, third thing that Jesus predicts is the sudden nature of his second coming. Jesus is like, church, you need to be aware of these three things happening. These three things are coming. He's telling his disciples. The temple's going to be destroyed. There are, there are a couple key signs that as they grow in intensity and frequency are going to point to my return. And when I return, it's going to happen suddenly. The Bible says like a thief in the night. Suddenly. Now, Maybe I'm already kind of alluding to my position on this, and we'll get into that in the coming weeks so that you can argue with me. But um, the three big ideas that Jesus is predicting here. Now, this morning, like I said, we were going to try to shoot through all of this today. Not going to happen. So what we're going to do is give like a bit of an introduction to this. We want to look at those, those first few verses, and I want to kind of offer an intro into this topic today. So let's go look at these uh, this first few verses. E each week, we'll look at a different section. This will be uh, this morning. That'll be next week the signs in the week after, the, the suddenty of his coming. So let's start here with the destruction of the temple, these verses, and give, as I said, a bit, a bit of an introduction. Um, I know that's already been dense, like, but we're just getting started. Like, it's, um, it's coming at you here, okay? Um, take, take a note or something. All right. Mark 13, verse 1. Let's read this, where Jesus begins to predict the destruction of the temple. It says, then as he went out of the temple, let's remember, where is Jesus coming out of? He's coming out of an environment in the temple where he has been dueling with the religious leaders. He's been counseling his disciples. Uh, Nate taught an incredible message on the way Jesus valued, looking at that widow putting in her two mites. Um, now Jesus exits, exits the temple, and he is going to go to the Mount of Olives. That's why this is called the Olivet Discourse. And Jesus goes out to the temple, and as they're walking out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, what manner of stones and what buildings are here? Um, this is common to anybody who's in some new city, maybe. Uh, we, we just, as we were flying into to Maine, uh, we had a layover in New York. That's the, that's the name of the state. You ever heard of it? I'm like, New Mexico? No, New York. It took a while, but... Um, as we flew into New York, we were trying our best for the kids to look out the window and see these things called skyscrapers. They're used to like the tallest building, I think, in Boca is the Hyatt down in there off Federal and Palmetto. So, so, you know, looking at these big, I mean, this is the disciples. They're walking out of the temple and, and they are kind of taking a glance around and they are mesmerized. They are sightseeing. They're putting the quarter in the machine and everything to look through the big binoculars, right? These guys are full on tourist mode. And they are in awe and wonder as they're viewing what was one of the ancient wonders of the world. This is Herod's temple. It's the second temple. Solomon built the first temple. Zerubbabel 
And Ezra, you can read about this in the book of Ezra, rebuilt the second Jewish temple. And then in 16 BC, sorry, 19 BC, Herod the Great of all people, he pioneered like a big renovation fixer-upper Chip and Joanna Gaines project on this thing. And he expanded this thing to a level of glory that it had not been at any previous time. Um, it was an 80-year project, 19 BC to 63 AD. 80 years reconstructing this just gargantuan building, which is sad because, not sad, but it's interesting. 63 AD, it gets finished. Seven years later, it gets destroyed. But um, this thing was massive. The temple was 500 yards long, 40 yards wide. So that's the first thing they're in awe of. They're looking on at this thing, and it's just bigger than any building they had ever seen in their lives. Beyond that, the temple was blindingly glorious, blindingly glorious, and I mean this literally, okay? The temple was overlaid with plates of gold and white marble that would catch the light in such a way that it would shine like it was, you know, it made sense, like this is the temple of heaven. It had that picture of like, look at the glory of the reflection of the sun upon this building. It would reflect for miles and miles and miles. Now, notice specifically the disciples are commenting not just on the building and the glory of the reflection and the size of it. They're, they're commenting on the stones, the building blocks. They're like, look at these stones. Now, a few words about the temple stones. Uh, these stones were mostly 50 foot wide, 25 foot high, and 15 foot deep. So this is... Uh, about the size, if not bigger than, well, about four of those, like, um, semi-truck, uh, what do you call those, like, little box things that people make houses out of now? You know what I'm talking about? What is it? Containers. <laughs> I get it. Contains things, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, think about the awe and wonder the disciples are in, seeing these massive stones. These are things that modern, most modern cranes can't even lift. You think about the genius of ingenuity going on here, and they're just in awe. Uh, in that culture, it wasn't just the disciples, but society worshipped this temple in that culture. Um, in, in a lot of ways, the temple had come to mean more to the people of God than God himself. And this is, by the way, not just a foreign temptation. I see this today in modern Christianity, where church can mean more to us than God himself. And this is what was happening in Jerusalem. The temple itself was the most glorious thing to them. Um, so much so that people would swear by the temple. Like, I swear by the temple that I'll pay you back if you get my dinner. All right? Another side of this is that it was considered blasphemy in this culture to speak against the temple. Which Jesus did several times because Jesus is awesome. Uh, one of the ways that he spoke against the temple is he said... I'm greater than the temple. That's what he said. This thing's going to be destroyed, but when I'm destroyed, I'm going to resurrect. Um, we, we also know how Jesus feels about the temple because of what we just studied in Mark chapter 11. Remember, Jesus rides into Jerusalem, and as he comes upon the temple, he doesn't stop and go, oh, man, I am so impressed with how spiritual this looks. Check, they're good. I'm going to move on. No, he goes inside of the temple. Because it's what's on the inside that counts, and he sees corruption in the temple. And what does he do to the temple? He curses the temple. Remember that picture of the fig tree that wasn't producing fruit? 
He looked on at it, and it was beautiful on the outside, but it was fruitless on the inside. The way the scriptures just uh, give a picture of this is in 2 Timothy. It talks about having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Having an external appearance of holiness and righteousness. This is one thing the Pharisees were professional at. They had all the right Christian phrases. They had all the right Christian moves. They, they appeared religious and holy on the outside, but they were hiding the corruption and the sin on the inside. And of all places, this was the place that people were meant to connect with God. And it had been turned into a den of thieves, and Jesus curses the fig tree. It's judgment. This is how God judged his people the first time. There was serious judgment that even came upon the temple. Um, and so this is what Jesus says. As the, as the disciples are like, Jesus, teacher, have you seen this building? Isn't it awesome? Jesus is like, nah, bro. This is what he says. You see these great buildings? Yeah, they're great. They're big. Jesus predicts the future. He says, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus is predicting the future of the temple. And in his prediction, he says, it will be no more. Just like that cursed fig tree is, going, is withered up, so too will this old system, this corrupted system of connecting with God is going to be removed and it's going to be replaced with the new covenant. For the temple is the people of God. We connect with God, not through some earthly priest, but through Jesus, our high priest, who went to the cross for our sins, making a way for us to be right with God. And we have a direct, direct line now through the mediator, Jesus. You know, you don't need to have like a, you know, a phone a friend kind of a thing where you know someone who's spiritual and they'll talk to God for you. God is accessible to you through Jesus. And you just call out to him. So Jesus promises this. He promises the destruction of the temple. Now, this happened 40 years after Jesus predicted it in 70 AD. The context of what happened is essentially there was a Jewish revolt against the Roman occupation and the Roman government. It started out to be successful as the Jews were rebelling against their occupiers. But in the end, Rome essentially came and flattened the city. Uh, they brought complete devastation to Israel under the leadership of Roman general Titus. Now, uh, the Jewish historian Josephus, who you've heard of, guy's first name was Flavius, Flavius Josephus. I think I know why people call him Josephus. They're like, Josephus said, sorry, Josephus, if you're in heaven and listening or something, I'm sorry if I just offended you. But anyway, um, he said that it actually wasn't their intention to destroy the temple. But what happened was it was a place of safety and shelter for a lot of the Jews at that time. So they ran into the temple for shelter, but they were still revolting. And so that led to the temple being destroyed, which is just crazy to think about. It, it wasn't their plan, but Jesus said it was going to happen. So it happened. Okay. Um, I want to point out something else as well. Jesus said that in the destruction, this is an important detail because this is how exact Jesus is about the future. I'm, I'm trying to get to a point that says this. When you look at how Jesus has predicted things in the past, you should trust him for what he's predicted in the future. Are you following? Okay. And there's an exact prediction he makes here. He says, not one stone shall be left upon another. So, so the way that this temple is going to be destroyed is it's going to be dismantled stone by stone. And this is exactly what happened. Because as the temple was ignited with a great fire to sort of uh, flush out all the people that were inside of it, the overlaying gold on the, the top of the temple began to melt and run down between the cracks of these massive stones. 
And in order to extract the gold between these stones, the Romans removed this temple stone by stone to get the gold, just as Jesus himself predicted. It's really amazing. Uh, now, I want you to see what follows here, where we're going to kind of take a turn here. Just hold on. You ever, like, been in a car with someone, you're driving, and they know there's about to be a turn, but you don't, and then they just make the turn? They don't even put their signal on, and you're like, whoa, bro, I didn't know you were going to turn. Okay. I'm giving you my turn signal is what I'm trying to say, okay? Here's an interesting turn. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, his inner circle, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, asked him privately. And here's the question they asked Jesus about this coming event. This is really important. Jesus, tell us, unveil to us. You know the future, so give us a little bit more intel here, okay? Future Jesus, when will these things be? Now, this is the key question that has divided the church for a long time. That, key, that little, small, four-letter, lethal word, when. When is this all going to happen? How is it going to happen? And it says, and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Now, from, from Mark's version, it, it might seem like all they're really asking about is when the temple is going to be destroyed. But this is what's so beautiful about studying the Gospels in parallel to each other. They complement each other and give us a little bit more intel Matthew 24 tells us a little bit more about the question they're asking. In Matthew 24, verse 3, it says, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And notice this second important question. And this is what we're going to kind of build the remainder of our time off of. And what will be the sign of your coming? You're here, but you're... there's this idea in their minds that he's going to come again. And here's another concept they have. And what's the sign of the end of the age? Now, in the disciples' mind, probably because of what happened in the Old Testament, the temple being destroyed was synonymous with the day of the Lord in their mind, right? That was God's judgment on the nation. So in their minds, when Jesus is talking about the destruction of this temple, he's readied them for his return. He's, we're going to talk about that. He talked about how he's coming back. In their mind, they are connecting the destruction of the temple with both the return of Christ and this little event called the end of the world as we know it, right? The end. They're connecting what Jesus is talking about here. They're just going to equate it to this interesting idea, the end of the world. It makes sense why they would think that way. Jesus, how can we know when, ready for this, the end of the world is going to happen? Now, I'm, I'm saying that assuming that that's what the end of the age refers to. There are some streams of what's called millennialism or eschatology. Somebody's like, I'm a millennial. No, not. we'll get into that, okay? Um, there's some streams that believe that the end of the age refers to the Jewish age, and we'll, we'll talk through this in the future. Um, regardless, we know that the disciples and the people of God throughout history had some con concept of the end of this world as we know it, of this stage, of this age, of this time, that things as they're going, and all of the brokenness that goes along with the world that we're in, it will not always be this way, but there's a new dawning day coming. This time will end for a new day to come. The end, the end of the world. I mean, again, if you got brought by a friend today, welcome to Solus Church. We're talking about the end of the world. Okay, now, as... um. Surprising as that may be, this idea of like the consummation of time as we know it, um, this actually isn't 
something too foreign to us, especially Americans. Like, you know, we have a, actually, we, we have a cultural fixation on this topic. Have you noticed, noticed this? There, there are whole genres of books, movies, TV shows that are dedicated to this very thing from you know, The Walking Dead to Wally. All right? Um, the apocalypse sells, okay? The, the end of all things, it seems to be something that even our culture recognizes that I don't think the way that things are caring are going to continue. And, you know, pick your favorite end of the world movie, all right? I had a, there seemed to be an onslaught of them, especially in the 90s. Bruce Willis blows up a meteorite. That's a good one. Anyway, we, we'll stop there. But, um, and I want to say this, it's not just our culture. It's not just our culture that has some sort of like special fixation with the end of the world as we know it that the disciples were pointing to. Um, like growing up, my inherited tradition theologically made a lot of emphasis on the end of the world. I was terrified growing up as a young little boy in the church. Um, and to make, you know, really where this was most popularized, if you remember, is by the Tim LaHaye Left Behind series. Anybody ever read those? Okay. I want to be nice. Um, those movie or those books, the Left Behind series, it turned into a, a movie series. Um, you remember, if you remember, Kirk Cameron was the first movie that came out, the Left Behind, just looking young and beautiful, and and it was so convenient and impeccable that this movie came out in year 2000. You guys remember Y2K? Guys, I'm 11 years old. I'm just like, what is life? Who am I? I'm in sixth grade. It's like. Oh, the world's ending next week. Here's a movie about it. It's like, I'm just like, okay. Um, maybe you're not familiar with Kirk Cameron's Left Behind. You're more familiar with the remake that came out in 2014 with Nicolas Cage. <laughs> um, this happened. Okay. As well as Jordan Sparks and Chad Michael Murray. Those are the other names. Now, I just, while we're on this topic, um, you're like, why are we? Just follow me. While we're on this topic, underrated film. Everyone talks about the Nick Cage and the Kirk Cameron. The all, but I got to tell you guys, my all-time favorite Terrify Your Children About the End Times movie was, an, was a, was a spin-off of the Left Behind series called Tribulation, and it wasn't Nick Cage. It wasn't Kirk Cameron, but my End Times hero as a kid was Gary Busey, all right? <laughs> Gary Busey got me through my fear of the end time. Now, okay, in the world of popular culture, we're obsessed with this. We've made whole films and movies and conferences. Growing up in my tradition, there were regular prophecy updates that were given about what's going to happen tomorrow, people dating this stuff. Um, let, let's, let's, just, let's just take a, by the way, let's take a deep breath, okay? This is just for me, all right? We have all inherited some form of idea about the end of the world. Whether culture shaped us or church has shaped us or our own fears have shaped us, there's something real about this, I think even in the human condition, that's longing for more beyond the stars and more beyond life here on earth. Now, let's we'll do what I, I want to just set a groundwork for this. Um, this morning is really just about, I just want to give you this foundation, and we're going to build off of it in the next few weeks. But when we zoom into this, and we just kind of back out of culture, we just zoom into the scripture for a second, um, in the world of theology, let me, let me just give us some information here. What we're talking about is what's called the study of eschatology. Eschatology. From the Greek eschatos, which means the ends, 
It's the same word that's used in Acts 1.8 that says that we're going to be witnesses to the ends of the earth, the eschatos of the earth. And so simply speaking, in the world of theology and Bible uh, interpretation, eschatology, what Jesus, what, by the way, it's like, why are we talking about this? We're going to talk about because Jesus talks about it. I'm even going to say why it's important. But eschatology is simply the study or the knowledge of what God has revealed about the end. That's what we're getting at here. Trusting God's word to inform our understanding about the end. Um, there are three main sections of Scripture, as you might already know, that deal with this. I, I mentioned it earlier. Um, it's first the book of Daniel, chapter 9 especially, has a lot to say about the end. It's secondly the Olivet Discourse. So here in Mark 13, what we're going to study, Matthew chapter 24 and Luke 21 are all parallel passages that are all dealing with this specific topic, the end of the world as we know it the sign of his return. And then you, you might have heard of this book in the New Testament that most of us don't know what to do with, which we should, but it's the book of what? Revelation. The book of Revelation. Um, the three main apocalyptic passages and sections of Scripture. Uh, Revelation, I want to tell you this. The, um, this is Revelation 1.1 that tells you why Revelation was written for this exact reason. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. This is a lot like Mark 13. The things which must shortly, uh, another word for that word shortly is quickly, rapidly when it takes place, take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John, who's exiled on the Isle of Patmos, receives this revelation. This, and, and the word uh, revelation in the Greek is the word apocalypsis. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, the word revelation there, it's the word apocalypsis, where we get the word, anybody want to guess? Apocalypse? which, by the way, has nothing to do with zombies, okay? The word apocalypse literally means the unveiling. So God opening our eyes to see beyond the veil of our human understanding to perceive what's to come in the future. That's the goal of Revelation. It's for God's kids to know what's to come, to have a confidence. In the midst of your suffering, there's more to this life than what you're going through. That's the purpose of Revelation. Now, as you might already know, the book of Revelation, and specifically the topic of eschatology in particular, has become one of the most divisive areas of study uh, in the church. You have whole camps that have separated themselves from other brothers and sisters in Christ because of usually minor disagreements over some fine details that the more I study, the more I'm convinced nobody should really hold with too much certainty to where you punch someone with what you think is true. There's, there ought to be a sense of humility to say we're doing our best together to discern what God's word is saying from a highly difficult book to interpret. And if, in fact, most of the disagreement has to do with a chapter in Revelation, chapter 20, which talks about this thing called the millennium. You ever heard of that? The millennium. And it's a passage that in and of itself is very obscure. And so th there needs to be great humility with this. I'm going to talk more about this next week. I'm gonna, I want to give a, a survey of the main positions next week. Um, and really one of the main emphases on that is going to be um, probably the biggest mistakes we make in the church today is instead of uniting around the 99%, we divide over the 1%. And so what I want to give us today is the 
100%, here's a foundation, a 100% foundation of what every Christian believes about the end times. Is that good? That's helpful, right? Like, we'll, we'll talk about some of the fine details and figuring out what Jesus is saying. He's going to be like, there's going to be signs, there's birth pangs, there's this thing called the abomination of desolation. That'll be fun. We're going to talk about this thing called the great tribulation, okay? There's a lot to disagree about, especially like the millennium, which um, a great Bible teacher, Doug Wilson, said, the millennium is a thousand years of peace that Christians love to fight about. Jesus does not reveal the truth of the future to his children to scare us, confuse us, and divide us. What Jesus has revealed and chosen to reveal to us, his kids, about what's to come is meant to be for our souls, for our confidence, for our faith, and for our security. What he has revealed is for you and I to know. Now, here are, write these down. This is the foundation for the next weeks we'll build on. Um, these are the four things that Christians shake hands on. Despite our disagreements about how things are going to play out, when thing, I mean, that question of when is going to be next week. But um, these are the four, let me say this, gospel truths about Jesus that regardless of your position and persuasion, um, we are together going to be in heaven rejoicing over these truths forever, together. In fact, we should gather now as the church and worship Jesus for who he is and what he's promised us about the future. There are four fundamental truths that are for you today and right now. Stuff that you should know. First is that Christ, Christ Jesus will return. Don't get used to that. Stop for a second. Jesus, you're coming again. You're returning. This was one of the most consistent promises he made to his disciples, especially you remember in John 14 when they're all afraid because he's leaving and they've really gotten used to, like we would, life with Jesus next to you. And he's like, it's, don't worry, I'm sending you my spirit. It's going to be better. It's to your advantage. But here's the promise he gives them, that though he is leaving, he says this, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I will come again. I will come again. It's a promise that Jesus made. I will come back. And as I come back, I'm going to receive, what, what great language. This is wedding language, by the way. I will receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. This is meant to comfort us. I love um, Acts 1. This is one of the greatest passages about this. Jesus ascends, right? He speaks these things. While they watched, he was taken up in a cloud. That word's used a lot uh, to refer to the second coming. A cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by in white apparel. These are angels. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus. This same Jesus. Guys, the same Jesus we're studying about here in Mark 13, this same Jesus that loves you and saved you and has called you and knows you and guides you and shepherds you even now, this same Jesus who was taken up into heaven will so come. He will so come in like manner as you saw him go. One more truth about this is Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with clouds. 
It's not going to be secretive. It's not going to be unknown. No, nobody is going to miss this event. Jesus is going to return and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. Um, it was promised that Jesus would come the first time. He came. It's promised that Jesus will come a second time. He's coming. And we can be confident of this. The disciples carried this with them. And we're going to talk about this in week three. The church lives with this expectation. Amen? Christ will return. Now, as he comes, Christ will also reward. This is what he's coming with. Christ will return, but he'll also reward. Look at Revelation 22, 22. This is post-ascension glorified Jesus saying, Behold, I am coming quickly, faster than you think. I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me. I'm coming to reward, notice this, to give everyone according to his work. So every Christian in Orthodox Christianity that we would give the right hand of fellowship to, uh, someone who's a, a, a true believer in Christ is going to affirm that Jesus is coming back, and when Jesus comes back, he's coming to bring, listen, once and for all final judgment upon humanity. Final judgment. Uh, this is often called um, um, the last judgment or the great white throne judgment. But Jesus says here, I'm coming to reward each one. Let me give you the, the picture of this in Revelation 20. Just listen to this as John is seeing it. He says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, the dead, small and great, famous and unknown, every single human being in the history of the world standing before God. And books were opened. The sea, sorry, and books were opened. It says this, and another book was opened. This is an important book. It's called the Book of Life, the Lamb's Book of Life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. That's terrifying. The dead were judged according to their works, by which things were written in the books, documented. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found in the, written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So scripture promises that wickedness will not triumph in the end. Yet Satan himself will be judged for his crimes. The accuser of the brethren will be shut up forever. Don't give that temporary voice any more attention. That, that prowling around like a roaring lion. He's a phony lion who's going to be judged. And, and sin will be judged. Not, not, listen, not in spite of God's goodness, but because of his goodness and his grace and his righteousness and his perfection. How, how could anyone stand at this judgment? How can anyone stand before God? How can you or I in this moment stand before God with boldness? There's only one answer. You have your name written in the Lamb's book of life. Listen, a lot of us spend our whole lives trying to fill up a big book of our good works 
where we try to spend our whole life trying to erase the book of all of our bad works. Can I tell you a way that's better than that? Let the works of Jesus be your identity. Let your name be written in the Lamb's book of light. Let your standing before God be wholly defined by what Jesus has done for you. What Jesus has done for you. Not what you've tried to do to him. Here's another one. Not what you've done compared to what other people have done. But in this moment of reward, God is going to reward those who have trusted in him. And let me even take this a step further. Jesus promises. There's this great incentive program as being a Christian where you lay up these treasures in heaven and you're rewarded for your faithfulness. Maybe you feel like you're an unseen person. Can I tell you, reward is coming for those who are in Christ. He sees you. Serve him as if your reward only comes from him and not from man. Amen? So Christ will return. Christ will reward. You know, part of this reward for those who are in him, um, the scripture tells us the wicked will be punished with everlasting destruction and the righteous will be rewarded with eternal life. And then there's this next promise that we all Christians hold to this. Christ will return. He will reward. And Christ is coming. Like a lot of us don't have any framework for this. And we need one because this is our hope as Christians. Christ will renew. He will renew. You ever renewed something in your house that like should have been thrown away? And you're, and you're like, babe, I got this. I'm going to make this thing brand new. Okay. Call me Chip Gaines. Watch this, all right? Um, it's in the book of Acts that we see this promise of God's renewal of all things. And when we talk about God's renewal, we're talking about the created order. Let me just give you the scripture. Um, repent, therefore. That's the call of, of God upon people that he longs to love and save and welcome to himself. He says, turn, turn from your ways. Trust in me. Come to me. Repent and be converted. Be transformed that your sins may be blotted out. That's a great invitation. And so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send Jesus. This is our prayer. Lord, would you send Jesus? <laughs> may he come, Jesus, who was preached to you before, whom, notice this, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things. It's a temporary time. That Jesus is in heaven until the time of the restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all of his holy prophets since the world began. In the very beginning, when God created this world and all things went wrong, God has been whispering promises that as things are, they won't always be. But a good day is coming forever. Well, God will, you know, here's the idea. God doesn't wipe out the created order and lead us into this disembodied state eternally where we're just floating around playing harps, you know, with little baby weird-looking angels. Like, some of us, we, we, we don't know what it's like to hope for the future because it, it doesn't entertain us or excite us or even appeal to us because we just imagine that it's just this disembodied spiritual nothingness. That is a lie, I'll say that's a lie from hell to get Christians to be apathetic in their faith and not be excited about eternity. There's so much to be excited about. So much so that you start living in that hope. And, and what scripture tells us is that God doesn't look at the created order that he loves, that we broke, and he just goes, we just need heaven. No, his plan all along, this is so beautiful. God goes, I'm going to restore it. I, I, that's what God does, by the way. He doesn't throw out the old. He takes the old and he makes it new. He takes what's old and he breathes fresh life into it. It's what he does in our lives, amen? He makes us new in him. He restores us. He renews it. 
like it was new from the very beginning. This is what he's going to do at the end of all time. I want to say he's going to do it first. Listen to this. He, for those who are in Christ, ready for this? The first order of business for God's new creation is you. It's you. He's going to renew you. He's going to restore us. The Bible tells us this incredible mystery that we are going to not just, you know, have a disembodied state before God, but we're going to be conformed to Jesus' own glorious body. That same glorious body that was supernaturally appearing to the disciples. So there's like, there's like the spiritual component to it where he would like show up in the room. It's so awesome. Just like, hey guys, were you there the whole time? So, you know, I just beamed in, what's up, you know? But that same body is the same body that's like, can we get some breakfast, guys? You ever read that with Jesus? Post-resurrection Jesus rummaging around in the pantry trying to get a snack. There's a physical nature. It's a mystery. The beauty of the gospel over your and my life is that you won't always be in the broken state you're in. And as you get older, you feel this more and more, right? I mean, if I'm 34 and I'm kind of like, uh-oh, I, you know, I can't imagine. So was that insulting? I didn't mean for that to be insulting. I'm just talking about the natural aging process, okay? We have hope. We have hope. And, and listen, there's a lot of, like, the hardest thing with this is I'm preaching it. <laughs> and so it's, but there's so many great passages in Scripture on this. I love this. 1 Corinthians 15, 49 says, as we have borne the image of the man of dust. I am all too familiar with that image. Anybody else? It's a sinful image, it's a broken image, it's a limited image, it's an image that fails to do the things that I really desire to do, and God is sanctifying us by his spirit to be those that walk in obedience, that look like Jesus, that's sanctification, is we're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. But here we are on earth, here's the human experience. We bear the image of the man of dust. That's why you, by the way, I'm just preaching here now, I'm sorry, we're gonna go on to the next thing, but that's why you should not hesitate to get into community. Community is a bunch of just dusty people. And if you come to church here and you try to like dust yourself off and act like you're not as broken as the next person next to you or they're better than you and so you got a whole, like let's be real. We all are made of this thing called dust, man. We, we've all borne the image of Adam. We're all in that state. But in Christ, the Bible says what, what Adam did for us is nothing compared to what Christ does for us. So we, we used to be in Adam, but now we're in Christ. And here's the hope of that. We also will bear the image of the heavenly man. It's really sweet to know. It's sweet for me because I saw a lot of my loved ones pass away in a state that I never want to see them in again. And I'm so thankful that I won't see my mom again the way I left her. Um, and maybe you know that personally. It's our hope. You know, it's our hope. Like, this is real. And Paul's like, if you're struggling to trust it, look at the resurrection because that proves it. Did Jesus rise from the dead? You're going to rise too. And you will see them. You will hug them. You will, you will experience something much more tangible than you imagine, not just bye-bye, pie in the sky, whatever we've created heaven to be. Um, we also see that in Christ's renewal, Jesus renews. He, he's renewing creation. He starts with his people, who he's begun to renew. The Bible says if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. One day we'll experience the fullness of that. But then Jesus, this is like, 
this is the climax of the book. Which, like, how do we not know where this whole thing leads to? <laughs> it's chapter 21 and 22 of Revelation that describes a new heavens and a new earth. A restored, renewed, created order. Can I read it to you? Here, I'm asking because I'm just prepping you. I'm, I mean, if you said no, I'm going to read it. But here's what it says. It says, this is really, really amazing. John says, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. It says also there was no more sea. Is that a, you know, an idiom for division between the nations? I hope so, because I want there to be waves in heaven. Verse 2, then so he sees this new heaven, new earth. He says there's no sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. This is beautiful, the new creation, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, here's our future. Here is where you are headed towards, whether you like it or not, in Christ. This is your hopeful future. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and he, they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. Look at this, no more pain. Pain is no more. Every form of it, anxiety, depression, both physical, mental, and soul level is gone for the former things have passed away, then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. This is our hopeful future. And I want to remind you, this is really cool to know this. Um, we're going to be there for this. Aren't you excited? Okay. Anybody, was anybody there at the creation of the world? Anybody there? Anybody? I mean the first one. Right. You know, the only person that was there was God himself. Jesus was there because Jesus is God. And the created order was, in the first creation, what was it? The elements of the earth, and then God created man, and he put him in the earth. The second creation were there the whole time. We're recreated first, and then God recreates the earth. And we experience this union we're all longing for. This is the ultimate hope of a Christian. Peter says, nevertheless, according to his promise, we look and we long for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Is this a longing in your heart? Let this be where your eyes go when you're struggling with sadness and difficulty and trial. Remember, Revelation's written to a bunch of suffering Christians. And Paul will say the sufferings of this world are nothing to be compared to the glory that's to come. Uh, lastly, we'll close with this. And Dan and Laura, if you want to close this in worship here. Uh, last thing is that Christ will reign. Christ will reign. Christ is going to return. He's going to return in goodness and grace to bring righteous judgment and eternal reward to those that are in him who have trusted in Christ for salvation. As he comes with his reward, the, one of the rewards for the righteous is that we're renewed and the whole created order is renewed. This is so huge. Okay? Um, did you ever think that your eternal future is on earth? Did you ever think that? That's what the Bible teaches. A new, it's not some disembodied state, ooh, heaven, this is cool, all right? It's a renewed creation with meaning, with joy, with, with really good food, really good food, really good drinks, great joy and righteousness and peace in the Holy Spirit is what Paul says. That's what's coming. Doug Wilson said this about heaven. He said, 
Heaven, as we think of it, is not our home. We're just passing through. That's how, that's how we think about earth. We're passing through earth. We're going to go to heaven. Like, if you have a loved one who has died in Christ, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord in a spiritual sense. But where that all, that's all, that's a temporary, intermediary period until Christ renews all things. Is that making sense? That's what's coming. That's what our hope is in. Peter says we look for this day where righteousness dwells. And can I just uh, affirm to us as we close here, the reason why righteousness is going to dwell eternally is because Christ will reign forever. This is the greatest need in your life today, for Christ to reign over your life. For him to be at the center of your heart. For him to be on the throne of your heart. This is where peace and joy comes from. This is our future in Jesus. And isn't he so good to us that he would invite us along? That he would bring us into not just the information of what the future holds, but he'd bring us into the story and he'd say, listen, even though, even though you have sought to be the own king, your own king of your own life, even though you have fought to dethrone me, I love you. I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to take your place. Even though you took my place on the throne, I'm going to take your place on the cross. I'm going to save you from you. I'm going to save you from sin. I'm going to save you from your separation from God by doing for you what you could never do for yourself, paying for sin so that you today could become the righteousness of God in him. You could become a child of God. You could today receive the spirit of adoption where you say, God is my father. And you say, you're the only king forever. Would you rule and reign over my life now, Jesus? That's what our future holds. That's, listen, this is why we study eschatology. Is this good for your soul or what? Is that, this is good for your faith. This is good for your hope. This is good for your love. All of it. To lean into that future we have in Jesus. So let's do it.